at every single book event I do, somebody always wants to know what's my productivity hack for balancing schoolwork and writing fiction at the same time. And I always disappoint because there isn't one. I'm a bit of a mess and I'm always missing deadlines and I'm always running behind and I feel like I never have enough sleep. And it's a tremendous amount of stress, but I love both too much to give up one. So here we are. R.F. Kuang wrote one of my absolute favorite novels I've read so far this year. It's called Yellowface. It's a literary thriller that investigates really challenging questions about cultural appropriation, racism in publishing, and social media justice. I read this novel in two days. I absolutely could not put it down. It's about a struggling novelist who steals her dead friend's manuscript and passes it off as her own. And it's the most incisive analysis of the racial anxieties of the cultural class that I've ever read. R.F. Kuang is also the award-winning author of Babel, which was a number one New York Times bestseller, and the Poppy War trilogy, which she started writing while she was in college. And she's not just a novelist. She's also a Marshall Scholar, has degrees in Chinese studies from both Oxford and Cambridge, and is now getting her PhD at Yale. More importantly, Kuang is a vital voice in the publishing industry. And she's also one of the phenoms on the 2023 Time 100 Next list, Time's annual list that recognizes the rising leaders in health, climate, business, sports, the arts, and more. You can check out the full list on time.com. I'm Charlotte Alter, Senior Correspondent for Time, and this is Person of the Week. One of the first things I had to know when we spoke was how someone so young wrote so many incredible novels so fast. It's one of those classic stories where an immigrant kid in the process of assimilating and learning English falls in love with reading and books. I was born in Guangzhou, China, and my family immigrated to the U.S. when I was very young. I grew up in Dallas, Texas. I was learning to become somebody who thought of herself in English, who dreamed in English, could function in English. So I was reading voraciously. I spent all my time at the local public library, but I never had aspirations to become a professional writer. So when I went to college, I started out studying international economics and realized that I'm very bad at economics. And then I switched my major several times and then landed on history. But I was able to take a gap year in between my sophomore and junior years, during which I lived and worked in Beijing. And it was astonishing because for the first time in my life after 5 p.m., I didn't have any homework to do. So I thought this is an immense amount of free time. It's such a gift. I should spend this year accomplishing a project that I've always wanted to do but never had time for. So my immediate thought was I'm going to learn how to code. It turns out I'm not very good at coding. <laughs> I thought, well, I'll try writing a novel instead. It sounds easier than learning how to code. And the reason why <laughs> writing a novel was on my mind was because 
This is a period when I was learning to speak fluently in Chinese for the first time. I'd lost my Chinese pretty quickly after I moved to the States, and I was able to communicate with my grandparents for the first time. This was huge for me. I was learning all this family history. I was learning about myself, my culture, my heritage, and it was all so much, all these stories, and I wanted to preserve them somehow. So it's that mix of emotions and self-discovery and family history that turned into the poppy war. And then we sent it out and got an agent and my agent sold the book. And then the next thing I knew, I had a three book deal. So I didn't have any choice. I had to keep writing novels and I found that I still enjoy doing it. But I realized in the telling of the story that it seems like I became a novelist completely by accident, but I think I would have ended up telling stories one way or another. So you hadn't written any novels before The Poppy War. It was your first novel that you ever wrote? Actually, when I was in fifth grade, I turned in a novel called Liberty or Death, which is about a freedom fighter whose best friend dies during the Boston Massacre, and he fights in the Revolutionary War to avenge him. I was really, really into the history of the American Revolution when I was 10. Wow. Well, honestly, I would read that. (laughs) I think it's a work of art. I'm really proud of it. So I want to turn to Yellowface. Your latest book is about two writers, June Hayward and Athena Liu, who are essentially frenemies with two very different experiences in the publishing world. Athena is... Chinese-American. She's a literary star. She's had every opportunity that could be available to a young writer. She's got six-figure book deals. She's on all the bestsellers lists. She's got a Netflix deal. And her friend June, who is white, not so much. She's struggling a lot more. Um, At the very beginning of the novel, Athena dies in a tragic accident in front of June, and June steals her unfinished manuscript, or recently finished manuscript, and kind of edits it slightly and then passes it off as her own. And the novel follows what happens when June essentially steals Athena's work and tries to get the success that Athena had for herself. And it's a fascinating look behind the curtain of the publishing world. And I loved how it really interrogated these issues of identity and authorship and who can tell which story. And I also just thought that the character of June was so well drawn. Um, She is such an unlikable, unreliable narrator. And Her pathology is so interesting to me because she's so entitled and she's so resentful. Tell me about the choice to write from this character's perspective. How did this character come to you? I have a lot of love and sympathy for June, as despicable as she is. And I think you have to have that love and sympathy for all of your characters, especially the villains. Otherwise, they're not compelling. Otherwise, they just come off as cardboard cutouts of somebody who's acting viciously for the sake of being vicious. But June is also not acting from an innate desire to hurt and fool others. She's acting from very true and I think universal and relatable emotions, emotions that almost everybody in the publishing industry has felt at some point. Certainly, 
during the first few years of my career, I felt a lot more like June than Athena. What I mean by this is that she has a tremendous amount of insecurity and disappointment and sadness about how her publishing experience has gone. I think that in this industry, we don't talk openly enough about the tremendous psychological damage it does to you when you don't become an instant bestseller, yeah. basically, when you don't have Athena's Cinderella story. And we expect writers to just have a stiff upper lip about everything, not respond to criticism, pretend like we're not feeling the blows. But writing a novel is something that involves such tremendous vulnerability. You pour your heart and soul out onto pages in isolation for a long period of time, and then you put it out in the world. And sometimes what hurts more than a bad review is the thought that nobody cares about what you've said at all. And I struggled with this disappointment and nihilism about my work for a long time. I think we also need to get better at talking about how writers process their professional jealousy and how they relate to others. To be clear, the writing community that I am in now and am familiar with is much more mutually supportive and kind and focused on solidarity rather than tearing each other down. But we are also in this unique moment where there's this writing ecosystem that largely exists on social media where everyone is advertising their wins all the time. There's a narrative about what it takes to become a successful writer and what milestones you're supposed to hit at what points during your career to prove that you are going to be the next big thing. So you need to sign with a hotshot literary agent. You need to sign with a big five publisher. You need to get in a book subscription box or a book club. You need to hit the New York Times bestseller list. There's a standard script for all of these success markers. And when you see these flying in your face, being waved by writers you know, it sucks and it hurts and it makes you feel like you're not enough and you're not writing fast enough or writing well enough. And we need to talk about how we process that. Now, June has processed it in the worst way possible. Right. But these emotions are not coming out of nowhere. So you said earlier that you wrote The Poppy War in your gap year while you were still a student and it was the first novel you've ever written, and then it immediately translated into this three-book deal. So it seems to me like you had this amazing success at the very start. So how did you access this sense of what it's like when things aren't working? I've been tremendously lucky in my publishing journey, and I've also felt at multiple points that everything was going to disappear under my feet and that I'd squandered the first and only opportunity I was ever going to have. So something that people don't know or don't remember about the popular trilogy is that not a single one of those books hit any kind of bestseller list when they came out. And for the first few months after the popular came out, I was often sick to my stomach thinking that the trilogy had been a complete flop that I was never going to earn out my advance. It was very common for me to walk into bookstores thinking, oh, I might see my book on shelves. I'm really excited. Only to find that they didn't even stock it, which can hurt more than watching your book on shelves, not moving a single copy over weeks and weeks. These things are also relative. I think 
something that I try to explain to debut writers is that no matter which milestone they think they just need to get to, there's always another disappointment waiting on the other side of the bridge. There's always something else to make you insecure or make you frightened. And this is not without basis because it is a very volatile industry and people who seem to be very successful on the outside or who are celebrating their wins might be completely panicked about the state of their sales or what they're going to write about next and who they might publish with. So it's an industry full of very anxious people and they have good reason to be anxious. Yeah, I really understand and deeply empathize with what you're talking about. So you've said in a few interviews that Athena is sort of like your worst nightmare version of yourself. What did you mean by that? Athena is somebody I also have a lot of sympathy and love for, but with whom I'm trying to explore the worst things that success and attention can do to a person, how they can warp someone's psyche. So I feel very lucky in comparison to Athena that by the time my books had started doing pretty well, I had had many years of slowly watching my audience grow. So I felt like I grew into the role. And when Babel came out and did as well as it did, I had a very firm support system of people who keep me grounded and tell me when I'm wrong and who are always willing to humble me. Athena doesn't have any of that. She's not as fortunate as I've been. She's so isolated. She's very isolated and she's surrounded by people who are always blowing smoke up her ass. She got a book deal right out of college. She became a celebrity overnight. And I watch this happen to other young authors sometimes. And it seems that this is a very difficult process to go through, to suddenly be told, you are so important. Everything you write is gold. You have all this attention, but you better do it successfully with the next one. It's a huge amount of pressure and it also warps your sense of self-worth, your your ability to evaluate your own craft. And in the worst cases, it can make people narcissistic and cruel to others and judgmental. And even in the best of cases where they've held on to their decency and humility, it can make it debilitating to work on a new project because now you have all these standards and expectations. More with the writer R.F. Kwong on her creative process when we come back. much of Yellowface is about this creative process. And I'm curious, what is your creative process like? I'll do anything and everything that works. The really disappointing thing about being on your sixth novel is that you realize it never gets any easier. (laughs) Each novel is its own unique challenge. And I also feel like it ought to be this way. I would never want writing to start feeling easy or comfortable because that would mean I'm not pushing myself creatively. So the process has changed drastically with each novel because 
they're all in very different genres and they all tackle subject matter that I haven't dared to write about before. But the popular trilogy, I read a lot of craft books about science fiction and fantasy and I found the traditional three-act structure. So that's how I mapped the outline for that story. But when I transitioned to working on Babel, which is stylistically closer to Charles Dickens than contemporary science fiction, this meant I had to switch to the more complicated five-act structure. So learning how to do that and also learning to write in Dickens's very maximalist, detailed, often indulgent with the run-on sentences style, that was fun. And I felt that I was becoming a new person and a new writer through that process. A yellow face, again, is as different from the Victorians as it's possible to be. And that's a social media novel and also a novel written during lockdown when nobody had an attention span worthy of the Victorians and we could only sit, at least as a reader, I could only sit through very short, twisty psychological thrillers. Anything more complex or heavy or long was just beyond me. So I was teaching myself to write in a very gripping, compulsive and also sloppy style, a style that isn't trying to be precise with every single word because nobody has the patience for that, but a style that defaults to the easiest, most reductive way of explaining things because that is what attracts the most attention when you're composing a tweet. So that was also a fun way to write that I was exploring. And now I'm trying out something else. So I wish I had some kind of process advice, but I feel like I'm learning and becoming with every new thing. Well, I'm really glad that you mentioned genre because like you said, you've written across many different genres. What are your thoughts on these genre labels? Like, is there one particular genre that you feel like you find your home in or are you really trying out a new genre with every novel to see what you like best? I think... Most authors would agree that genre labels are pretty silly. There's no hard and fast distinction between literary fiction, whatever that is, and science fiction and fantasy. If anything, I think people historically have used genre labels to be snotty and condescending towards fiction for women, for instance, or fiction for nerds, you know, but it's literary fiction that doesn't have magic and doesn't have dragons that is read by proper intellectuals and cultured people. I think that's silly. Why, for instance, is Kazuo Ishiguro never shelved in sci-fi fantasy and always in literary fiction when he's got plenty of magic and science fiction in his stories? And it's because people have made value judgments about what's worthy of critical acclaim and what is it. But everyone's just telling stories and those stories have multiple different elements. So genre exists as a convenient marketing label and something that helps booksellers decide what shelf to put something on, but that is all that genre is. I think I just write whatever I'm reading the most at the time and I think all writers do this and we ought to write in the style that we're passionate about and interested in, otherwise you're forcing something that isn't naturally going to spill out of you. And I started an epic fantasy. People keep asking me, 
you know, why did you choose fantasy? What's special about fantasy that allows you to make the arguments about history that you want to? And I used to try to give all these really sophisticated, articulate answers about fantasy and speculation and fabulation acting as this refracting prism for understanding social issues. But the honest truth is just that I think fantasy is really fun. So I want to go back to talking about the publishing industry, which is one of the main characters in Yellowface. I mean, this novel is really about, as you said earlier, how publishing kind of chews up and spits out writers, elevates some people and ignores others. So there's this idea in the book that, quote, publishing picks a winner. And we see how sort of the marketing machine kicks in for June when the manuscript she stole from Athena gets picked up by a publisher and suddenly she's having this star experience that she never had with her earlier book. What has your experience with the publishing machine been like? And what did you want to show about this process? I think the most harmful lie that new writers are led to believe is that writing a good book will guarantee the success of that book when that is so clearly not the case. The single best predictor of how a novel is going to do is not anything to do with the genre or the quality of the novel or the background of the writer, but how much money is being poured into the novel, what kind of marketing and publicity budget is it getting, and what was the size of the advance? Because the size of the advance is often indicative of how much the publisher is going to spend elsewhere because now they have skin in the game. And I know so many early career novelists who think that the burden is entirely on them, that if they just tweet often enough, if they run the right kind of social media campaigns on Instagram, if they make enough TikToks, my God, we have to talk about TikToks. We are going to talk about TikTok for sure. Don't worry. (laughs) So many authors are being told now you have to get on TikTok, you have to market it yourself on TikTok, but none of it matters, right? Aside from a few very visible exceptions, none of this is going to move the needle on sales. What's going to move the needle on sales is how much your publisher is investing in the book. And I've been on all sides of this. I've had a novel come out that I hoped was going to sell a lot of copies that really didn't because it wasn't that much of priority. And then I've had a novel that did clearly receive all of that marketing spend. There was a massive poster of the yellow face cover at London Book Fair. And I know that the subsequent success of the book has a lot to do with how much effort was put into making it extremely visible. I feel extremely fortunate to have received this. And I also know that it can go away at any moment. So I'm not letting myself believe that the success is all me. It is very much the publishing machine and where it chooses to place its bets. So I definitely want to talk about TikTok. What was your experience like on BookTok, which is what they call TikTok about books? And how important do you think it is in the publishing industry? Book talk is obviously very important as a driver of sales. I think anything that gets people reading and buying books is amazing. But for authors, I don't think it's important at all. And I will preface this by saying that when I went to Taiwan over the summer, 
I couldn't log on to TikTok anymore. So I deleted the app and I never downloaded it when I returned. And this has done wonders for my productivity. But I was posting on TikTok last year, which I didn't do all that often. But I don't think that authors making TikToks really impact sales in any meaningful way. And I've had conversations with a few other writers whose books are also very popular on TikTok. They explained to me these books went viral on TikTok before they even had TikTok accounts. And also we all agreed that when our own TikToks go viral, there is no corresponding spike in sales because readers don't want to feel like they're just being aggressively marketed to all the time. Rather, it's the organic discussion of books that readers are passionate about. It's when readers are talking about authors they like, tropes they like, books they think are really cool, books they think are underrated, books they're excited about. That's when you see some movement happen. And this is just not something that publishers can manipulate or authors can manipulate. I think it's really easy to sense blatant marketing on that app. I think young readers especially are allergic to being sold products when really they just want to talk about books they think are cool. So one of the main ideas that you're exploring in Yellowface is this idea of diversity in publishing. And you've talked before about how it's a myth that in publishing diversity sells. But clearly, June believes this to be true. And in Yellowface, we see June actually really benefiting from allowing people to believe that she's Chinese-American when actually she's white. What did you want to say about diversity in publishing with this novel? There is an odd, persistent myth that diversity is all anybody wants now. And it's a myth in the vein of immigrants are taking our jobs, essentially the idea that if my manuscript is not doing well, then it's because I'm not queer or a woman of color or any one of these marginalized subgroups that publishers are only paying attention to these days. And it's an especially vicious myth given that it's not grounded in any empirical evidence to speak of. I mean, we see surveys of what is being put out by the industry year and year again, and the percentage of novels published by non-white writers has barely budged since the 70s. So there is no rational basis for believing this. But the reason why I think the myth persists is because rather than making any sustained and serious or comprehensive effort at diversifying what kind of stories are elevated and described as important. Rather, there's this ongoing effort to hold up one or two tokens to prove that, look, we have a very successful Black author. We have a very successful Asian author. Here's our successful gay author. That means that we've done our duty. And Mm -hmm. one or two examples will stand as representation for all the rest. So I think what's going on here is both a backlash to any amount of space that opens up for voices who traditionally haven't had a platform and also a pernicious tokenism that disguises any real progress. Yeah. So I really feel like at its core, this novel is about this question of who gets to tell which stories. 
And I'm wondering how you think of that as somebody who clearly has such an incredible imagination and such incredible literary talent. Do you think that there should be a limit to who gets to tell which stories? Or do you think that writers' imaginations should be able to cross race, gender, class, time period? I think writers should get to write about whatever they want. And whether they do it well is another question. But inherent to the phrasing, who gets to tell what story is, who's doing the censoring, who's granting permission, who is the authority on what's allowed and what's not. And I think that takes us into pretty dangerous territory. And it's also silly territory because the act of writing fiction just is thinking outside of your lived experience and trying to empathize with another. Now, I think the two better questions we ought to be asking instead of the question, who gets to write this story, is first, who has historically been rewarded for writing this story and what voices are missing? This is a question for the industry. This is a question of who's getting opportunities, who's getting advances, who's being left out. And in this case, we do have real instances of who's granting permission and the people granting permission are the publishers deciding where to allocate advances. And this is not a controversial issue we need to work on. This is something that is substantiated with very dismal reports about who's getting published. Now, the second question is, is the writing good? Have they done it well? Have they done their research? Are they making interesting arguments or are they rehashing boring old stereotypes? And if the answer is the latter, then the book is just not very good and we ought to move on. But if the answer is the former, then I don't think it matters very much to me what the author's background is so much as it does what their intentions were when they wrote it and how they did it. Rebecca, it's been so illuminating to talk to you about writing and about your new book, Yellow Face. But now, just before we go, we want to hear a little bit more about how some things in your daily life shape you. So I'm going to ask you some lighthearted, like rapid-fire questions where you just say the first thing that comes to your mind. And we call this segment The Last Time. Okay, when is the last time you had writer's block? I had writer's block this morning. But instead of walking away and doing something else, I just sat at my desk and twiddled with my pen until the right sentence came to me. When is the last time you bought a new pen? I don't buy pens. I steal my fiancé's pens. (laughs) When is the last time you traveled by train? I am on the Amtrak at least twice a week. And I have become very familiar with all the stops on the East Coast. And I'm always promising myself one day I'll do a day trip to Mystic, Connecticut and eat some pizza and walk along the harbor. But that day has not arrived. I've done that. It's really fun. When is the last time you put down a book that you didn't like? Last week, but I feel it rude to reveal the title of the book. And when is the last time you binge watched a television show? Oh, I can't remember. The problem with television shows is that you can't speed up the process. And if it's going to be a 20-hour commitment, then that's time I don't have. Rebecca, thank you so much for being here with us today. This has been such an interesting conversation. And again, I just loved Yellowface. Thanks so much for having me. This was so fun. 
R.F. Kuang's latest novel, Yellowface, is on shelves now. Thank you so much for listening to Person of the Week. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to hear from you, so send your tips or thoughts on our show to personoftheweek at time.com. I'm Charlotte Alter. See you next week. Person of the Week is hosted by Charlotte Alter. It's produced by Nina Bisbano and India Witkin. Our senior producer is Ursula Summer. Our story editor is Katie Feather. This episode was mixed by Aaron Dalton. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. Joseph Frischmith is our fact checker. Person of the Week is a co-production of Time Studios and Trigger 23. At Time, our executive producers are Mike Beck and Sam Jacobs. At Trigger 23, our executive producers are Mike Mayer, Michael Sugar, and Liam Billingham. Sasha Mathias is the head of audio at Time. You can find us online at time.com slash person of the week and wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.